So good evening. I'm going to try not to deafen you all, so let's just get a, a, a correct distance from the microphone. Uh, if anyone needs me to stop or if I'm going too fast, because I'm Irish and we tend to speak at that kind of rate, please just do this or make some kind of gesture or throw something at me and it'll be fine. So this is uh, very informal. They're setting the bar low for the first talk of the year, so they called me. Um, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about... Uh, science coverage, and in particular, how we get that wrong. And I'm going to keep it nice and short. I, I wasn't sure I was being insulted there, so I had to sign in. So we'll keep it uh, nice and short, and then we'll have more of a discussion about it. So I'll cut to the chase. We'll get straight to it. I'm going to do the boring part first. I'm going to do the, the statistics part of a talk first. I, it's not actually boring, but people tend to gloss over when you get into uh, statistics. So I'm going to just do that first, get it out of the way, and we'll go. All right, so the first quote I give is actually a bit of a misquote. Can everyone see the screen okay? Because it's kind of doing this weird dancey thing. That, that, that's an added extra that wasn't supposed to be in the talk. All right, so the quote I open up with is, uh, statistical thinking will one day be as necess necessary for efficient citizenship as the ability to read and write. And this is often attributed to H.G. Wells, which I've done here. That's not exactly what he said. He was talking about numerical ability, but let's just say it because everyone knows the quote that way and we'll just take it. So in the modern age in which we live, information is conveyed to statistics to us in practically everything, whether it's political, scientific, or economic data. We are under a barrage of statistics constantly. And the reason for that is we think statistics are quite intuitive, and to an extent they are. It's a scale between zero and 100%. What could possibly go wrong? Oh. That could go wrong. That's a start. But actually, a lot of things can go wrong. Despite the fact that they're so ubiquitous and you know we are marred in them, all too often there's a few different things that, that mess us up. One is media reports do not always convey them to us accurately. And worse than that, the true meaning of what those statistics actually mean is often lost to us. So the reasons for this are varied. Sometimes it's because a sensational headline might grab attention. And sometimes it's just fantastic base innumeracy. This is one of my favorite headlines ever. I, I actually have tried to check if this is genuine. Apparently it is. So if you can't see it, it says, we hate math, say four in ten, a majority of Americans. It, it, you know, I, I've, I've tried to parse how someone could possibly have got that information from it. Maybe people didn't respond enough and said, I've I don't know. I'm trying to be generous, but that's just so spectacularly stupid i just had to use it in here at some stage so i'm going to jump straight into some examples that are fun so the majority of people think they're of above average intelligence now <laughs> i mean i'm not going to ask you to put your hand up and say who here thinks they're of above average intelligence obviously you all would be uh, <laughs> keep the audience on your side Check. Uh, <laughs> But the actual thing is, this is a lovely distribution. Here is a representation of, of... Oh, you can't see the top of it, so I'll have to make that up for you. Okay, so this is what human intelligence tends, tends to look like. Here at around 100 IQ points is where most of us, the vast majority of us, stand. And then if you go below, it gets less and less and less. And if you go above, it's almost a symmetric picture. It's the exact same. This is a normalized or a Gaussian distribution, and that's how a lot of things roll. So if most people say they're above average, the average is right here. Um, you, most people could not be above average. This would not work. And most of you saw that as soon as I put the, the little bit of text up saying you all kind of knew what was coming. But this is where we get misled sometimes. Because in theory, 
Here's a question I'll ask you first. Can most people be better or worse than average at something? Oh, you guys are making... There's a, bit of, there's a bit of contention over here. I mean, I'll, you see, when, when I've shown you the last picture, a lot of people would say, well, yeah, obviously everything comes right in the middle. But I decided to come up with an example just, just to show you where that might not be the case. Let's talk about car accidents and safe drivers. Um, there was some real data for this, but I'd prefer to make it up because I couldn't find the real data the other night. So I've made up a hypothetical series of accidents that you could have. So you have the majority of people uh, with 1.4 accidents per year. These are still pretty not safe drivers, but let's just say most of them. And that's where your average is, right there. But you see, you have this, this beautiful person out here, right out here, who just loves having accidents. They, they've had loads. They, they, this is great crack to them. This person is the guy <laughs> from Carmageddon, all right? They're just running over pedestrians left, right, and center. But in this kind of stuff, assuming a normalized distribution, which is what we all tend to do, is a poor choice to make. So this is just an illustrative example of why we have to be careful when we report averages and means and medians and modes and all those kind of stuff that we hear all the time. But let's take a more concrete example. Let's imagine there's a deadly condition that affects one in a million people, but it's invariably fatal and it's a terrible thing to get. But luckily there's a test that is 99% accurate. So, meanwhile, back in the lab, everything should start off with meanwhile back in the lab, we have a million people getting tested for, I think I've called it metabitis. That wasn't very creative of me. Right, so the test is 99% accurate. So, before I go any further, people would see that, hear that statistic, and most people go, God, that's a very accurate test. I, you know, that, if I get a positive, I should be a bit worried. Well, should we? Let's break it down. So, in this group of a million people who are just conveniently gathered for our example, the vast majority of them are not positive. Obviously, only one of them is. However, somehow in that group, because of the inaccuracy of a test, even though it's a very accurate test, we're still getting 10,000 positives. Right, let's go to our one positive person over here, who's quite large compared to everyone else. They come up positive with almost a certain result. So what you actually end up with is 10,001 positives, only one of which is positive, which means your positive test does not really indicate that you may actually have made a bitus. So the observation we should make of this incredibly hypothetical example is the veracity of a test is directly linked to the prevalence of a disease. That just sounds like a bit more making up numbers fun, but it does have some concrete examples. Let's look at HIV. So the UK-based infection rate is about 1 in 10,000 people from low-risk backgrounds, so people who aren't IV drug users or non-receptive anal sex people. That's a strange sentence. Please don't quote that. <clears throat> so, in a typical low-risk group of people, um, most of you here don't really strike me as IV drug users, so we're probably okay to assume you're all low-risk. One in 10,000 will have the illness. Uh, the Western Ink Bottle ELISA test is about 99.99% effective, so it's way more effective than our, our hypothetical example. So, let's say we have... This is a bit hard to see, I apologise... 10,000 people without known risk behavior getting tested. We expect one positive case of HIV and 9,999 negatives. So we do our tests, and our person with HIV, well, they are almost certain to flag up positive. In fact, for another argument I won't get into tonight, they are pretty much certain to flag up positive. Um, so in our group of controls, our 9,999 do not have HIV, yet we still get one positive in that because the test is not... It cannot be perfectly accurate. Nothing can be. So your chances of having HIV with a positive test are actually, there's two positives in this entire group, only one of which is positive, means it's 
So even with the test for a real disease that is 99.99% accurate, your base stats really affect that. Because your odds on having it are low in the first place, so too is the test. Now, there is a flip side to that. What if you were in a high-risk group? What if you were um, an IV drug user, an addict, or something like that? Well, then we can look at the same decision tree for these groups. And you have 10,000 people with known risk behavior. It's very handy how these big groups keep coming to get tested at once in my examples. But the, and you have 150, because the base rate, by the way, for a group of this size who are high risk would be about 1.5%. So we can say 150 in 10,000 cases. So if they come in to get tested, 150 are HIV positive and they flag positive, as you'd expect. 9,850 are not positive, And in that group, you'd only expect one false positive. So what you'd see here, and it's really hard to see at the bottom, so I'll read it. If you are in a high-risk group and you get a HIV test and it comes back positive, your odds on having the illness are 150 over 151, or 99.34%, which is markedly different than the 50%. And that isn't intuitive. This is something that a lot of you guys will know. I mean, I'm looking at a lot of faces here. There's probably a few statisticians in the room who are rolling their eyes going, everyone knows that. But the problem is people don't. And it is, there's errors like this are made all the time. We read about a new test that has this accuracy or this accuracy, and I'm not going to go too much into it at the moment. But just to illustrate the example here, that even in something as simple as a test for an illness, that we don't consider, most of us do not consider the prevalence of a disease to be something that we'd ever think about first. We just look at the accuracy of a test, but that on its own will never give you the true picture. We have another problem related to this with conveying risk. So there's a few different ways to convey risk. So this is from a study abstract published a few years ago that said people with high cholesterol can rapidly reduce their risk of death by 22% by taking private... Uh, it's, a, it's a statin of some description that I can't pronounce. Anyway, and I can't read it or there with my bad eyesight, so I'm just going to stop. So here's the data from the actual trials. Well, the problem is there's a lot of ways to convey this information, and all of them are valid, but they'll all emotionally trigger different responses in us. So here's one of the treatments. And with people with high cholesterol, over the time they surveyed them, of 1,000 people in that group, 32 died. And on the placebo, 41 died. So straight off the bat, you can see that it appears people on this are doing better than placebo. So how do we report that statistic? Well, you can do it as absolute risk reduction, which is the direct reduction due to the drug. In this case, it would be the difference in people who died in the control group and who didn't. In this case, it's, uh, it's 41 minus 32 over 1,000, so 0.9%. That's not really that impressive sounding a figure. If you said this has an absolute risk reduction of this, no one's going to be impressed. The other way you could uh, report it is a relative risk reduction. You could say the absolute reduction of the number of patients dying without. So in this case, it would be 9 over 41, 22%. And already that figure sounds a lot more captivating. If I was trying to sell this drug, which figure would I be using? 22%. The other way that medics sometimes report it is the number needed to treat. And that's the number of patients you would need to treat with this drug to save one patient's life. In this case, it would be 9 over 1,000, which goes to 1 over 111, which is, well, 111 patients to save one life. So that's not very, very impressive. If you compare it to something like antibiotics, the effect is... It, it's, it is not impressive at all. Now, if you were trying to sell this drug, what figure are you going to use? And if you've spent millions and billions, in most cases, marketing and researching a drug, you're probably going to go with a 22% figure. Now, all of these figures are the same thing. They're telling us the same information. But no one asks. When you see a figure reported, people don't tend to ask, particularly in, in 
in science media, people don't usually give the context for that figure. So if I quote that in one report as 22% and another report says 0.9%, they're actually referring to the same thing, but without the background that we have here, you can't see any of that. And this is something, if you pick up a paper, whether it's uh, the Daily Mail or the Guardian tomorrow, and you go through it somewhere, you'll find it. It happens all the time. They give statistics with no context for them, which actually leaves us in the dark about what those statistics are really talking about. Another example is um, a medical procedure like breast cancer screening. And this is for women over 40 without any signs. And this is a debate that still kind of rages in the, the medical physics community a little bit. So let's, uh, let's just talk about this. So with screening, these are deaths per 1,000 women over 40 with and without screening. So with screening, three will die from uh, breast cancer. And with no screening, four will die. So the absolute risk reduction is only 0.1%. The relative risk reduction is a quarter, so 25%. Number needed to treat, one over 1,000, would mean 1,000 women would have to be screened to save one life. And some of you might, I can see some faces there kind of lighting up a little bit. We'll talk a bit about why that's not fully correct in a second. The other way you could report that is the increase in life expectancy if you had the screening, and it's about 12 days. So, you know, yeah. Is a, we'll talk a little bit about that because this is actually quite an emotive issue that the statistics can mislead us entirely on. So breast cancer is a good example of a very emotive issue. We've seen it in countless uh, publications. There's charities for it. And, and it's something that really people are aware of. We all know someone that's been afflicted by it. And we have an emotional resonance with it. So many of the publications will urge women to get screened as often as possible. Uh, they've stopped doing that a little bit. But that up until about five years ago was something you would still see all the time. But looking at our data here, is that really a good idea? So the above table refers to women over 40, and a more in-depth analysis will yield no benefits for people in their 40s, some benefit for people in their 50s, and detrimental effects for people under the age of 40. And you might ask, and I'll stop here, but how could a test you know, be detrimental for a certain group? Surely it should be helpful regardless. You might find something that you didn't think you had. And that's how we'd think if there wasn't such things as false positives, which we've seen in the little HIV test example earlier on. So for young women, the rate of false positives is incredibly high. Uh, so a mammogram is a pretty blunt instrument. It doesn't tell you a whole lot. So if you see something that looks suspicious, it has to be followed up. And if you're not likely to have the illness, following up is usually a waste of your time and possibly your health. So the most common growth in a young woman is a ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS, the majority of these growths will never become invasive and are essentially non-progressive. However, many surgeons will opt for removal or at least aggressive observation, and which can lead in some places, not so much over here, more in the States, to the avoidable removal of breast or breast tissue. Which Also, there's uh, you have to think, I haven't put it here, but even the tests when you get the x-rays and uh, things to the chest, you are exposing yourself to you know, possibly ionizing radiation. And even though it's a small risk, if you keep doing this, you are increasing your risk. So there is a cost associated with being cautious. So that's something to keep in mind. So other breast cancers might progress so slowly that it will never cause an issue in the person's lifetime. We can look at that, actually. So it's highly publicized, and it's worth having a look at the breast cancer stats. Unfortunately, a lot of this chart... You don't have to read the full thing. Don't worry. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of it isn't really obvious. So in 1999, Stern Magazine, it's a, a German tabloidy kind of thing now, ran an article ran, called One in Ten. 
and it gave the figure, which is widely publicised, that one in ten women will suffer breast cancer. Sometimes it's quoted as one in nine, um, but yeah, one in ten was the name that Stern had offered. So the figure is correct, and at the same, obviously that would be something quite striking. But most of these instances are in old age. So if you look at the charts here, where things start occurring and versus number of deaths. So when they survey young women and ask them what they're afraid of, quite reasonably, a lot of women will answer breast cancer. It's a very, very big fear. Um, However, if you look at the charts of death and death causes here, you can't really read the heading. Most women will die from cardiovascular problems, the same as most men, like 42.5%. Now, of women that will die of breast cancer, it's about 4%. So you're looking at a problem that in, in base statistics, we're much, well, I say we, I'm not a woman I, that I know of. Um, <clears throat> so we're looking at a group, you have, from coverage, people much more worried about something than they ought to be, perhaps. And there's a way, for, I have to phrase that carefully, because that's not, obviously, there are different reasons that it might be a risk factor if it's a family thing or, or other factors to be considered. But if you survey the average woman on the street and ask them what they're afraid of, of dying from, they're going to answer breast cancer before they'll answer cardiovascular disease, even though there's a tenfold difference in the risk. So that is a media thing. That has a massive effect on our perceptions. And it, just to follow up, is breast cancer a particularly you know, deadly cancer? Because that would be a, a reasonable concern too. So we could just look at some... These are a few years old, by the way. It's changed very slightly. But these are um, you know, mortality statistics for different cancers. So lung, male and female. Uh, sorry, lung, male. So this is incidents versus uh, deaths. So with lung, you can see it's pretty deadly. The two columns look really, really similar. Uh, same with lung for females. Females do a bit better with lung cancer, but still not great. Breast cancer, your incidence is much, much higher than your, your death rate from it. So not that there's such thing as a good cancer, but stacking things up, it's similar to prostate, where your incidence is much higher than your mortality. It is something that is survivable, whereabouts lung cancer is still more difficult to, to live with. You have other types. So that is solely from coverage that has shaped our perception of an illness. Now, there's some people in the room I know do cancer research. I know a few of you around, and this is probably old news to you. But it's not old news to everyone. And if you talk to people in media, they often seem a bit surprised by this. And they'll say, they will answer to you, well, why do we have so many charities for this cancer or this cancer? And that's a hard one to answer. But I think perception is changed by how much we're exposed to something. So media reporting of medicine following on from that actually does, I, I think anyway, does change our perception, and there's some data to support that. So we've seen real medicine has uncertainties, and even a test that seems fantastic might actually not give you the answer you think it will. Statistics aren't always obvious, and media coverage is uh, frequently totally inaccurate, which doesn't help. So making some of these. So here's a classic example. Here's a medical finding that regular ibuprofen use leads to one extra heart attack per 1,005 users. Let's look at how that was reported by a few esteemed publications. Here's a Daily Mail. And they wrote that it increases the risk of heart attack by 24%. Now, I've, I've played with those numbers. I do not know how they got that. It was fantastic, but I have no idea where they got that one from. Uh, the Daily Mirror. <laughs> I said esteemed for a good reason. So they said 1 in 1,005 in ibuprofen will suffer heart failure over the following year. So this is, this is brilliant. I've kind of tried to highlight in red everything they've got wrong. In one sentence that long, they've made three mistakes. That's impressive. So firstly, they've kind of got the figure a bit wrong. So they said one of that uh, will suffer heart failure, so they got the wrong disease. That's a good start. And over the following year, just to make it a bit scarier, I mean, they win the, the panic headline right there. But being serious for a sec, 
getting stats and reporting right matters because media coverage has a measurable effect, as I've kind of alluded to in the last slide. And this has been measured in a few different cases. So when Kylie Minogue got her, uh, her, her breast cancer diagnosis back in 2005, requests for mammograms went up over 40% in, uh, in, that, in that year in Australia. Um, again, even though we know that mammograms aren't always beneficial, it was mainly younger women asking for the mammograms, which is actually detrimental. Uh, when, cervical, when Jade Goody died of cervical cancer, requests for smears went up by 21% in UK hospitals. Now, there's a bit of an undercurrent to this that I, I mentioned in a recent piece I did. That effect that they called the Jade Goody effect persisted for about roughly one year after peak coverage. And quite literally, as soon as the media stopped reporting on it and it got old, it fell to a 10-year low in smear test requests. So this does really have an effect. Now, obviously, I'm looking at all you guys, and you're all suave and sophisticated, and you're thinking, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be influenced by the media that way. But people are. And this is all measurable. You can see it, it was called the Jade Goody effect, and they were, they were heralding it for, for about the year until they realized that they hit the lowest levels they'd ever had right after it. So once it's in the media, people don't care. Um, I said ongoing here, which gives you an indication that I may have written this at the end of last year. I apologize. The, uh, the King case prompted much interest in proton ter therapy, and even for situations where there is no clinical expected benefit for it. And it was all over the paper. People were saying he should get it, he shouldn't get it. And the amount of requests, even the center I work in in Oxford had a staggering number of phone calls of people saying, should I get proton therapy? And a lot of clinicians banging their head off a table going, kill me now, kill me now, kill me now. <laughs> At least two. Uh, so, also a little bonus lesson. Um, you see this not just in science and media matters. You see it in economic statistics all the time. Uh, this is actually from an Irish example, but I, it, it, it's equally applicable to house prices in London if you want to play this game as well. So you can lie with statistics. Here's a made-up investment that's actually lost value over several months. So here's over a year. Someone gave you a million, and you were very careless with it. Uh, so that's how. So what if you were Bertie O'Hearn, Ireland's then Taoiseach? What would you do? Well, you'd look at that data and see a good thing. Uh, the portfolio fell by 50% in the first six months, but uh, raised value by 60% the last uh, six months of the years. So it's not 10% gain. And <clears throat> I'd like to say that people didn't fall for that, but they did. <laughs> So the, the important take-home messages with statistics is they cannot be combined because they refer to different things. In this case, you have a portfolio that is still, at the end of year, lost 20% of its value. So people take their, their base representation, and it does happen. You will see it. I mean, I, I, recently watching something on House Press in London, they were literally adding the statistics years on year. And you're, you're banging your head off a table again saying, no, don't do that. That's wrong. But it happens all the time. So for this reason, we have to be especially wary of stories that, that just simply add statistics whether they can be added or not. So statistics are an incredibly useful tool is the message I want to ram home here. But without context, they are meaningless. They are white noise. And one of the things that we could be aware of is when we read a piece, instead of just being you know, pulled in by the, 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 the alluring-looking numbers, we should actually ask, what is this being compared to? What is the base and what is the context? Of course, often if you ask a journalist that, they'll look at you like a rabbit in the headlights, confused. But it's good that we ask those questions because otherwise we do run the risk of being incredibly misled by what we read. So I'm going to go into the second part of this now that I've kind of got statistics out of the way in a very, you know, I, I skipped a lot. But let's just say that's a crash course in stuff that goes wrong a lot. So the thing I want to talk to you about that is, is depressingly common in science media is journalism. 
So this is a quote by um, Vasim Jakur in BBC. He said, you get copy coming in on the wires and reporters churn it out, processing stuff and maybe adding an odd local quote. It's affecting every newsroom in the country and reporters are becoming journalists. And that was a number of years ago. And then British Journalism Review said, I think it's a beautiful quote, a harboring of the end of news journalism as we know it, the coroner's verdict can be nothing other than suicide. That was back about seven years ago. So... Uh, for some reason, I have the header on statistics still in there because I didn't check my slides. So let's just pretend I didn't do that, okay? Go on. Excellent. So I'm going to give you some examples of journalism. This is the one that I remember actually got me into science writing because I got so annoyed by it. Do you, does anyone remember back in 2011 when the Zodiac had a new sign? No? Good. Neither do I. But um, it did happen, and every press office in the bloody world ran it. It's, it what actually happened, this is a beautiful story, um, this, this is from the Irish Times. I could take an example from The Guardian. I could take one from The Telegraph or The Washington Post. It was in all of them. Essentially, a, uh, an astronomy lecturer out somewhere in Minnesota was giving a lecture trying to explain axial precession, so how the, when the world is rot- rotating, it changes its angle a little bit. And he tried to say, well, what, are, what the Romans saw in their star signs is actually we're at a different angle to it now. And he was trying to describe that. And some uh, erstwhile reporter in the room heard this and went, wow, we have new star signs now, taking the entire wrong message from the entire talk. And this showed up in the Minnesota Star, which is like a newspaper that three people and a dog read. Uh, but somehow this was so exciting that it went to wire and literally everyone reported it. And they would get local astronomers and just they, they get it off. They get a phone call from a journalist who go, we have a story running on astronomy. Uh-huh. We need a quote. Okay. And then I'd imagine some of them were so flabbergasted by how dumb it sounded that they were trying to parse it. But it ended up running. And the guy who um, originally made the quote, the astronomy professor, had to go into hiding for a while. I think this is the best part of the story. <laughs> Because people were threatening to kill him, writing letters saying, I've always been a Pisces, and you can't take that away from me. <laughs> it's just, it, it just it staggers me. That's so, but this, this got reported. I mean, these were reputable broadsheet papers running this. Oh, it's true. Um, another example I love, and this is where you have to be so careful. You probably remember this one from the Daily Mail, March 2010. The 2,000 bugs taking a ride in every train compartment. Oh, it was horrifying, wasn't it? Except that it's, um, it's quoting Rent-A-Kill. And Rent-A-Kill... And you're sitting here going, hang on now a second. Rent-A-Kill are running a fluff piece about how you need to fumigate. Well, that's funny. Well, you wouldn't think they'd say that, would you? But this got uncritically picked up. Now, I know the Daily Mail, it's easy. Yeah, come on, we all like to poke fun at the Daily Mail. But that was brilliant, because uh, they deserved it. And the other one came with a similar thing, was Woman with Two Vaginas Offered One Million to Make Porn Movie. And that was run by the reputable news agency known as Vivid Entertainment. Anyone who sniggered there knows exactly what I'm talking about. So but these are classic examples of journalism. They are, they take, they're from a wire source, 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 they look interesting and they get ran, but they have no news value whatsoever. So all of these stories are, are repeated. In fact, what really worries, uh, worries me, and I think it should worry everyone, 80% of news content in British newspapers is from wire source, sources. So it could be rent deciding to go to the wires, or it could be someone else, or it could be some idiot in Minnesota. They, what comes through the press office looks interesting. They'll make space for it in a paper. It doesn't usually... News is so instant that... I, and this is some, in some ways our fault for our demand for instant news as well, that we now have a problem things get interesting, they have to be picked up and ran, whether they're true or not. Analysis comes second to running a story. So only in UK broadsheets, so even like reputable papers, only 12% 
is original reporting. And it's practically zero in the tabloid papers, which probably doesn't surprise you very much. Um, so comment on, here's a comment, a lovely one, then, uh, Rebecca Brooks' editorship of the Murdoch tabloids, which is quite a damning indictment. Scores, if not hundreds, of front-page stories are now written by PR men. They would think up a headline and a story, and the sun and news of a world would run it, word for word. Some of them were complete fiction. Meanwhile, proper stories by proper journalists were buried deep inside the paper. Uh, then that, that was um, that came out in the Murdoch trial. I just thought it was an interesting quote that kind of sums up a bit of a problem. So another example was one from last year. Do you guys remember this? The long-solving Jack the Ripper. This is BBC, and this is The Guardian. So these are these. It's easy to take pot shots at the Daily Mail. I'm just going to something a bit more highbrow now. This Jack the Ripper story that came out last September was from a guy who wrote a book about Jack the Ripper, who claims he solved the mystery by violating all basic research elements ever. Uh, but no one questioned... Well, I say no one questioned. About three weeks later, people went, oh, that's obviously nonsense, but not before they'd run it and given it the air of publicity. Someone seeing that story goes, oh, that's a serious story. And that's unfortunate. It happens, and it shouldn't. BBC should never be running something about some guy who thinks he's found out who Jack the Ripper is unless he can prove it, nor should The Guardian. But they'll do it because... That's News by Wire. And the only reason I picked on these two guys here is that they're news sources that we usually find quite reputable. We would kind of go, they're good for analysis. We expect the Daily Mail to run Churnal, but we don't actually expect the BBC and The Guardian to, but they will, because that's the way the modern world works. I had some first-hand experience of this last year, oddly enough. So I had a paper on guitar physics that came out, because that's something I do in my spare time when I'm bored. And I have to admit, the people who got it right were the Daily Mail. They rang me, they asked me dozens of things, they tested things out, and they wrote a piece. The only problem was the headline, but I blamed the sub-editor for that. And it was a fine piece. They had most of the details correct. The comments were, of course, wonderful to read and made you hate humanity, but the article was fine. However, Forbes, who you might expect were a better news source, did the, the by-wire approach. They, they, and they even they took the wire which Oxford had written in the press office and sent out from, you know, to, and they'd carefully researched everything, they managed to think that I'm A, an oncologist, which I'm not, and that I had worked out how great guitarists play guitar, which I hadn't. They'd made their own story based on a good headline. But... <laughs> God. Yeah, no, no. And, um, that, and that's... I mean, this is why I, I'm, 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 I start off... It's easy to mock the Daily Mail, but they actually have good journalists working for them, whether they get it to report or not. And there's Forbes, who I would have thought were much better, were quite happy to misquote, and actually made up two quotes that I had never said, which I thought was really good, because I didn't have to say them. It saved me a lot of time. So, <laughs> journalism is, um, it is a problem, and we see it all the time, and it infects how we view different stories. If, if someone with a vested interest in getting a story out, whether selling a product or selling a narrative, can simply just do it by wire, and media organizations will pick it up, that puts us in a very, very dubious position. The final thing I want to kind of get on tonight is false balance, or as I like to say, the Flintstones versus history. Um, sorry, I, could, I, could, I couldn't help myself. I had to just indulge. So, false balance. Uh, I'm not sure if I explain. Yeah, I'll just go with examples. You're probably familiar with the idea of false balance. So you have one idea that's buttressed by plenty of evidence and good scientific observation, and you say, oh, but we have to show the other side of a story. Now, there may not be another side of a story, but that doesn't stop newspapers running the other side of a story, whether it exists or not. And the problem with that is it puts two ideas, one of which is supported by an awful lot of information, and one of which, which is buttressed by nothing, 
on a seemingly equal fo- footing to people who are not necessarily technical experts. They're reading this going, well, there must be a debate. There must be a controversy. There is not, scientifically. So a classic example is the intelligent design debate. We see this in the States a lot more than we see here. But uh, So we have a scientific consensus that there is natural selection and, and it's got evolution. So the proponents of intelligent design, well, they reject that. And they say, well, they cite pseudoscientific or biblical sources, but they try to do it in a clever way, which is kind of oxymoronic. So what they'll do is they'll cherry-pick their experts, uh, Michael Burr, a number of U.S. politicians. They'll exaggerate technical points. They'll, they'll point to accuracy of radio dating gaps in the fossil records, which don't exist, by the way, but they love pointing there's gaps in the fossil record. They'll smear evolutionists as misguided or social Darwinists as morally corrupt, uh, the crocoduck argument some of you have probably heard before. And then they'll argue that we have to teach the controversy. It's only a theory and we should teach biblical creationism too. So right there, they have put on a, the, the, a false struggle. They've said, look, evolution is obviously supported by, I'm not going to go into this, we all know this to death. It's supported by lots and lots of, of scientific evidence. Creationism is not. But the argument they're trying to put forward is these are two conf- theories and therefore you should give them equal time. And you'd think this this is quite transparently intellectually vapid, but unfortunately it works. So another example I'll give you is what we see in climate change, which is slightly less religiously motivated. So the scientific consensus is there is anthropogenic global warming. There is not really much evidence to contest that. So in an ideal world, we would just all accept that and go, okay, Global warming is a thing. How do we deal with it? Uh-uh. That's not how it works. So climate change deniers will downplay the changes or try to pin them on natural cycles or whatever vacuous bullshit they've come up with that day. And they'll also cherry-pick their experts, politicians, non-climatologists, the usual you know suspects. They'll downplay things like CO2 emissions, ice sheet statistics, or outright deny any correlation. Uh, they'll claim global warming is a hoax by liberals and tree huggers and Al Gore. You've all seen the smearing. And somehow yet, even though they have nothing to go on, roughly 50-50 spread in articles that are supporting the scientific consensus and those which are doubting it. In the, now, this is, these are figures from the States, and I would hope they've changed. The ratio has changed a bit recently. I do not know, but this is from about four years ago, this statistics. So even though all publishing climatologists acknowledge that climate change is happening, somehow they've got a 50-50 balance in the media. That's really frightening. If you can take something that is a fact and, you know, a measurable, objective fact and still get a 50-50 spin on whether it's real or not in, the, in, in global media, that should worry us. So another example, um, which is probably hits closer to home for many, oops, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, is uh, the anti-vaccination crowd. And um, I, yeah, I know the boo there, can, I, I agree. So again, scientific consensus, vaccines are generally safe and save thousands of lives. WHO have put them up there as one of the top 10 health innovations ever. Anti-vaxxers will claim vaccines cause autism, other illnesses, whatever they feel like that day. Again, they will cherry-pick their experts. You're seeing a theme here, I imagine. They'll downplay the abundance of data showing safety links to illnesses with vaccines. They will claim a giant medical big pharma conspiracy, even though vaccines are low markup items. You wouldn't really make much of a profit off them, but... When did reality ever come into it? And the results are really, truly devastating. You have a reduced vaccination rate and kids will die and have died. We'll discuss this a little bit in another slide. Um, Anyway, and the final one, this isn't as big over here, but this is something I've been accosted with more hate mail than I can shake a stick at. Uh, They really hate when I use that picture too. They fucking hate it and I love it. All right, so... So fluoride. And now over here, um, it's added in Birmingham. I don't think it's added in Oxford, is it? 
Does anyone know if... No, it's not. It, it is in, up, up in higher up in England. I, my geography is really bad. Higher up is where we're going. So, um, yeah, so the scientific consensus is the WHO recommend about one milligram a litre. Um, sometimes you get it from natural sources, depending if you have a high mineral content. Other times it can be added in salt, food. It's added all over Europe in one form or another. In Ireland, for example, we add it to our water, and this, has ma- this makes people have conniptions. It's wonderful stuff. So they recommend this level for optimum dental health, and there is no evidence of any real adverse health effects unless you're overdosing on the stuff. So countries where fluoride is routinely added to water, fringe groups claim it causes everything from cancer to autism, and I mean literally everything. One of the experts at the moment, sorry, I shouldn't say experts, we had a tinge of you know, sarcasm there, but one of the Irish experts on this has literally taken a map of every disease that has increased in Ireland since 1965 and said fluoride did it. And he submitted that report to the government and then wrote a letter to Oxford demanding I be fired. That was uh, at the same time. That was wonderful. Anyway, so it's really poor cause and effect employed by believers. Um, They end up harassing medics, dentists, uh, even occasionally science writers. Uh, it's, it's a real hot button issue in Ireland at the moment and parts of the states in New Zealand and Australia where they still fluoridate there are fringe groups who passionately believe all sorts of weird things about this so they, they get popular support from fringe political parties with motions to remove fluoride and all sorts of fun like that so even though again the scientific consensus is overwhelmingly against them they still get a lot of articles written in popular press saying hey there's something to this by journalists who really should know better but all they have to go is say, oh, we need to, you need to show both sides. You need to you know, teach the controversy to borrow the creationist speak. And unfortunately, journalists are almost too willing to oblige. So we just talk about manufactured controversy. You can't see it, so I'll just read it out to you. So what you want to do is, if you want to do this, I don't recommend you do, you have to make a disagreement within the scientific community seem greater than it actually is. So the steps involved in making a false balance are actually pretty easy. I don't recommend you do this, but if you were going to, here's how you do it. All right. Firstly, you cherry-pick your experts. Uh, exaggerate any uncertainties or gaps. Science always has gaps in it because that's if science knew what it was doing, it would just stop. So you know, there will always be places where we don't know something. So just go, huh, there's a gap there. It's obviously wrong. Uh, attack or smear individuals because that's always an ad hom attack. Is It means your argument is so strong. That's what you have to do. Um, and, and then insist the media report both sides of a story. And they will invariably do exactly that so um now my good friend rick santorum sure scientists will tell you homosexuality is natural we know a guy with an md who says gayness is caused by a lack of moral virtue and a fondness for lycra the experts cannot agree you must present both sides now i i I may be putting words in his mouth but not that much so okay also there's a little discretion on just a theory arguments because you hear this a lot and you know this i'm preaching to the choir here a little bit, but let's go with it. So the theory of the common usage is an idea or guess. This is particularly common with the creationist groups who will tell you that evolution is just a theory. Uh, but the scientific usage is slightly more rigorous. It's a test of hypothesis that best explains all the observed data and has both explanatory and predictive power. So if we have our Sarah Palins of the world saying Darwin's theory of evolution is just a theory, I keep thinking of an ego Montoya. <laughs> You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that is that was my terrible Spanish accent, so I'll stop there. But this essentially is what every time I hear just a theory used, I just think of a little Inigo Montoya on my shoulder saying that. So there you go. I'll stop. So the problem, I, it's easy to blame journalists. Okay, I've, I've bashed journalists a lot. I'm sorry, any journalists who are here, um, because actually overall they do a pretty good job under hard circumstances. Mainly the problem is us. 
Not, not all of us. In, well, yeah, some of us in this room. But it is us. There's an ideological problem. So um, a famous psychologist called Leon Festinger once said, a man with a conviction is a hard man to change. Tell him you disagree and he turns away. Show him facts or figures and he questions your sources. Appeal to logic and he fails to see your point. Or if you prefer Simon and Garfunkel's uh, shorter version, all lies and jest, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. If you want to sing the rest, I won't stop you. <clears throat> so, so we can't lay blame for bad science journalism solely at the feet of journalists. They're catering to their audience to a degree, and their audience may already want to hear a certain thing. Their job is to sell a goddamn paper. And at the end of the day, they have to appeal to their audience. So one of the things we see is confirmation bias, which is the tendency of an individual to interpret information in such a way as to bolster their preconceived notions. And even when stories are correctly reported, they can be distorted by those that really want to distort them on ideological grounds. Certain papers and outlets know this, and they will report a story in a certain way to cater for the demographic that reads them. So when you see the red tops saying things that are actually horrendously racist, it's probably because their readers are horrendously racist, and that's exactly the correct audience for them to go to. They're not idiots. They know what they're doing. Unfortunately, that is so common that we kind of just accept it. We have a very odd view of the world around us, too. This, do you guys remember this last year? When they did, a, they, they did a big survey across Britain, they asked people to gauge how many Muslims they thought lived in Britain and how many people were you know, teenagers and pregnant. And what I found very interesting was, was the gulf between what people thought and what actually was. So, for instance, people in Britain thought 28% of uh, women were single parents. It's three. I'm saying women here. It can be men, I know, but this is from the attitude survey. Um, British people thought 24% of British people were Muslim. Only 5% are. They thought 22% were unemployed when 8% are. 30% black or Asian, 11% are. Age 65 plus, they thought it was 36. It's 16%. Uh, or Christian, they thought it was 34. You know, we see these, oh, Britain isn't a Christian nation anymore. It's actually 59%. So it turns out that we really don't know. We have a perception, and I guess I'm only putting this up there because I'm saying, where do we get this perception from? Do we get it from talking to the people immediately around us? Do we get it from the media sources that come into us? Is it a combination of both? I do not know. But I just thought that particular figure encapsulated how little we know about things we think we know. So, so politics does shape perception. That's a very important thing. Ideology has a massive impact on how you process a story. Uh, that means even when facts are clear and unambiguous, people are perfectly capable of dismissing the science behind it. So climate change is, is the example that really is, is crucial and very important to us. While the IPCC and even reputable scientific uh, bodies see the... Sorry, I, I didn't say that's a typo, and I'm reading the typo out, so let's ignore that. So we see the evidence for anthropo uh, anthropogenic climate change is incontrovertible. Denial of climate change is roughly in 50% of, of, of published papers that are not, sorry, I'll quote that, non-scientific papers. I mean, I'm talking about paper papers. Um, psychological literature indicates that affinity for free market really heavily influences whether someone accepts the scientific consensus on the issue. And that's probably because people that are very, very keen free market advocates, almost to a religious degree, I'm thinking American strict libertarians, see regulation as an ultimate sin. They do not like the idea of their markets being regulated, which will cause them to be more likely to reject any scientific information that tells them maybe regulation is required. This isn't limited to, to center-right views. I should make this really, really clear. If you take the IPCC report and show it to someone who's left-leaning environmentalist, they'll agree with it entirely until you find the bit where it says we need nuclear power 
as part of a solution, and then they will find every reason in the world why the IPCC are a bunch of idiots. The problem is the being distorted through the lens of ideology. It's very hard to avoid. We all have it. It takes a great amount of training and self-restraint to not bend things to your preconceived notions. But really, if we want to live in a world where we actually are doing the most practical, pragmatic things, we have to be willing to be flexible in our personal beliefs. Those ignoring the reality will try to deflect from it using red herrings or ad hominems, you know, the usual stuff. But it's not skepticism. That's unadulterated denialism. And it's really important. When you hear people say they're a skeptic about climate change, they're not. They're a denialist. If you're a skeptic about something that has been scientifically, the balance of evidence is totally on one side, either you present another viable hypothesis to counter it, or you admit that you're a denialist, but they won't do that, as we all know. So I've done, I've, I've noticed it a few times. I wrote a few different pieces about climate change. Here's just two of them that I got another. So one was on the Irish Times and one was for, for The Guardian, where I kind of made a longer point that I just said there. We have a problem with motivated reasoning. And the responses you get are pretty typical. The Climate Depot is a well-known, esteemed publication. I'm a warmest who foams at the mouth. Um, that is actually true. I do foam at the mouth. Uh, there was great things. Uh, again, they actually kind of copied... There's a different article with the same headline. I quite like that. They were so lazy they didn't come up with their own headlines on a different website. But you get this everywhere. I mean, this is... No, and they really hated this, the uh, the piece. I, I, in fact, to be honest, I kind of hated this piece too. Not the piece. I hated the headline because that's not what I actually said. This is where sub-editors do bad things to pieces. You send them in a piece where you've very nuancedly described how you're going to approach something and you don't want to point fingers, and a sub-editor goes, yep, I got just the headline for that. And the next thing, you have hate mail over a headline that you didn't even write. In this case, I did point out there was problems with libertarian ideology, free market stuff being applied to, you know, again, like the climate change or the gun control examples. But I could have easily done that for the left side of the aisle as well. And in the piece I did, unfortunately, um, Reason.com, which is a leading libertarian rag, decided that um, I deserved all the hate mail. That was fun. Uh, Anyway, so this is uh, my, my Irish nemesis. These uh, these people strip for fluoride. It's interesting. I don't know how this. I'm not fully sure how it works. Um, but to raise raise awareness of how dangerous fluoride is, they take off all their clothes in public places. Well, I certainly get a message from. It. I'm just not sure it's the one I'm supposed to. Uh, <clears throat> now, obviously, I've written a few pieces about this because. When I was first asked to write something about this, I said, I would Jeffrey fuck off. That's ridiculous. Because I've seen Dr. Strangelove. I know no one really takes fluoride conspiracy seriously. But my friend, who's another science writer, was getting a lot of hate mail over something he had just said on Twitter. And I was like, it'll be fine. Nothing can possibly go wrong. Oh, was I naive? So these are just some of the fantastic... I've done a few bits, on, mainly in Ireland, on this, on, on, on radio over there and TV over there. And you get... I won't read all of it, but this is one, the Fluoride Free Towns Action Network, who said, uh, what I will say here was there were some gross inaccuracies presented by Dr. David Robert Graham say, highly insulting, blah, 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 blah. Um, they didn't mention that I was funded by GalactoSmithKlein. That, and that's possibly because that was news to me. I, t- I didn't know I was funded by Gal- That was fantastic. I'm getting more checks that I never knew of. Another group over here said, uh, I, this is after a radio debate, by the way, where they had an absolute loon. Sorry, there's no nice way to say it. And he didn't really present himself very well. So all I had to do to win the debate was not sound like a lunatic, um, which is hard, but I think I pulled it off. And he just was babbling and yelling about the Illuminati and that kind of stuff. And I just kept going, yes, have a biscuit. And it was lovely. But he, d- he, didn't, he didn't really like himself much after it. So 
someone did some digging on me. I think this is particularly fantastic because I learned so much about Oxford from their digging. I didn't have to do any of the research. Uh, I've been doing some research on David Robert Grimes and his disgusting interview on RT Radio this morning. He's written a huge number of columns. I haven't really, about one a month, but there you go. Um, all defending big pharma and corporate interests. He got his position at Oxford right after graduating from DCU, which I'm told is very unusual for such a junior researcher. I think that's a compliment. I'm going to take it. <laughs> and look at what company is at the top of their list of sponsors for the nanomaterials department he works at. Wait, I work at a nanomaterials department? All right, fair enough. Let's go with it. There's no doubt about it. There is no doubt about it. That follows. Uh, can anyone pronounce that company name? Alcoa, is it? Thank you. Alcoa have, uh, have too much at stake. They need these lies to be broadcast on Irish radio, and they need reputable institutions to back them. This truth needs to be heard. Please share this information. The thing is, you'd think that was crazy, but 4,000 people shared that. <laughs> I got I got the best mail. Um, I got this guy too. He's this guy's an Irish government official. Well, no, he's not. He was appointed to um, one of the tech boards in Ireland, so he's a gov- an, an official appointee. Um, he wrote a very scathing letter about me. Actually, and sent it to the university and got my name wrong, which I thought was fantastic opening to the letter. Um, but he went on and on and on. But his main contention was in a radio debate with one of his lackeys. I told him, a fluoride ion is a fluoride ion. And he went, no, it's not. Apparently, fluoride ions are homeopathic, too. They have memory of where they've come from. So this is the kind of stuff you see all the time. Um, and they just, I mean, I'm just using them because they're the examples I, they're just lines there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm just using them as some examples because they're ones I've seen firsthand. People are very passionate about this stuff. And more so because I, I mean, I'm kind of cynical and grumpy and old. And I kind of say, no one's really taking this seriously. Can you better believe they take it seriously? And I, I was naive to think that people wouldn't. I was naive to think that people wouldn't let their ideological mistrust of something. Uh, for instance, the anti-vaccine people are a good example. They actually cross over an awful lot with the anti-fluoride people, their main contention is a mistrust of government and is a mistrust of health, modern health interventions. That, that influences their thinking about everything. That's why they're, they're usually the same people that will believe a homeopathic remedy instead of a vaccine is good for their kid. It's the same underpinning ideology for them that guides them. Everyone has an ideology of some description. The question is how much are you going to let yourself be rendered by the evidence so just some things I've learned, and these are just ideas. We'll discuss them later, I hope. So what should journalists do? <laughs> Why should I tell journalists what to do? Right, so realize people rely on you to give them a condensed, factually accurate account of something. Uh, statistics is a tricky area and is often counterintuitive. If in doubt, check with a statistician or a mathematician. Always ask for evidence and investigate before running stories. The sake of balance can be a very dangerous area. Be aware if someone is trying to sell you a minority report that the science may be bad. Don't be afraid to ask the opinions of other scientists or doctors in the area. We're not all that antisocial, I swear. It's actually a lie, we are. We're horrible people. <clears throat> science and medicine are hard areas and findings are often complicated. In fact, so I'm going on a tangent here. You've seen the, the, the amount of dirt that's been kicked up about that report that two-thirds of cancers are a bad luck one. There's the amount of nuance in that. All of these things have been... There has been correct reporting and bad reporting, but because it's such a nuanced area, it's really, really hard to get a tiny soundbite that represents an entire field. And that is something that I think we have to respect journalists run into all the time. This is a problem they constantly have to deal with. They're trying to make something accessible for an audience who usually do not necessarily care that much for it, and they will make mistakes doing that. So I think we have to be receptive of that as well. 
So scientists and doctors, sorry, still had the strange love thing in my head. Uh, <clears throat> so take the time to explain your research to an interested reporter. The process should be a mutual one. And it can be really positive when it is. I've had an experience this recently about actually conveying research. And if you take the time to engage, the reporters tend to take the time to engage back with you. So it is a, a good thing to do. Um, you need to, doctors and scientists need to keep up on their statistics as well. Um, I, didn't, I actually originally had a slide on this because I knew we were going to run over. I took it out about Roy Meadows. Some of you might know that name in the Sally Clark case. Uh, with the bad statistics of a, a pediatrician put several innocent women in jail for murdering their children. That's yeah, a short thing. And he was an expert at the time. Um, we'll talk about him later, maybe, in the discussion. So take time to explain bad science claims to people and journalists. Many are rational and will listen, and others, well, you know, shout at a wall because you'll get the same effort out of it. So many scientists prefer not to engage with the media. A lot of my colleagues will even say, why would you waste your time? But this is not always a good idea because if there's an absence of reliable information going out to them, someone will fill it, and it won't be scientists. That's where the problem is. So also, there is a thing, don't talk down to journalists. It, you can do it if you're really good in an area, and you may inadvertently do it. We all do it. It happens. Just be wary of it. And recall that there's a difference between veracity levels in journalism and science. While science has to verify each claim quite stringently, a journalist is under not the same level of obligation. It's worth bearing that in mind. And you... Yeah. So one of the things we can all do, and I think would make life much easier, is to quote risk and statistics in natural frequen frequencies. Frequencies. It's easier to understand things. For this is a HIV example. You can give a 9.99% and expect people to work it out with Bayes' theorem. But if you just break it down with a nice decision tree for people, when you're discussing it, it makes things much easier. So using natural numbers instead of just relying totally on context-free statistics, is something we can all do. Um, politely and firmly ask for evidence if something seems to be stated without evidence. Um, you guys, I'm sure you're all really good at that, given that you're here at a Skeptics in the pub meeting. So let's take that as read. Um, do not be afraid to request media outlets correct bad science. Don't think someone else will correct them. All smart people think that. It is so true. I'll talk to a colleague and go, That's, that was really wrong. Did you, did you contact them? She goes, oh, no, someone else will. But they won't. That's the problem. It, it, stories get cold very quickly, and the press is not going to be interested in correcting a mistake they made six weeks ago because no one contacted them about it. And they can be quite receptive. Error, I mean, especially in online copy, things can get corrected very, very quickly in response to errors. That's getting better. That is something that's improving. Media in general exists to make a profit and will reflect what their readers want. Make it clear to editors that you want clear analysis and good reporting and that good science and medicine stories are important to you because there is a conception in a lot of papers that science and medicine stories are nice little trinket pieces, but they're not really where it's at. So, of course, they're not going to invest their time in reporting them. But if you make it clear, actually, this matters more to me, they will hear that, as a lot of people do it. I mean, not just one of you, unless you're very loud. Okay. Um, and be mindful not to believe everything you read, especially if I write. So at that point, guys, I'm going to leave it because I've gone on for far too long and kind of waffled at you. Um, if you want to argue with me online, these are the best places to find me. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, or my occasional ranty blog is a good place to go. Guys, thank you so much for listening. And I'm going to hand you back to whoever wants the mic. Oh, you're right there. Sorry, Uncle. <laughs> I was frantically looking in the back and I've gone blind. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll let you take over the hard part. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, give it up!